Hey, beautiful mama, and welcome to Bell and Beyond. I'm your podcast host, Katie, a mama of one little legend, Hunter, and we have been on the most wild health journey ever. My son was born and diagnosed with a cleft lip, and I want to share with you how I was empowered through it all. This podcast is for mums or soon-to-be mums and dads. Feel free to jump in too. It's a place to debunk the many motherhood myths that leave us feeling confused, lost, and misguided. I want you, mama, to walk away from every episode feeling empowered and educated to make choices that feel right for you and your family. My heart is to see mamas connecting back to their roots and being exposed to ancient wisdom with modern day education. I'll be bringing you open and real conversations around topics we are not talking about enough with people passionate about seeing you, mama, thrive from the belly and beyond. Oh my goodness, I'm so excited for today's episode with Marika Rodestein. She is a holistic dietitian, nutritionist, and functional medicine practitioner with extensive knowledge and over 15 years' experience in her field. She has worked as a holistic dietitian in the Netherlands, India, and Sydney, and has run her private practice in Melbourne for the past eight years. She also consults interstate, internationally, via phone and Skype. She focuses on identifying and addressing the root cause of health issues and offers a non-nonsense, fad-free, evidence-based, honest, and informative approach to achieving health and well-being. Marika has a bachelor's degree in nutrition and dietetics from the University of Hague in the Netherlands and has completed the ADAPT functional medicine training through the Chris Cressa Institute in the USA. She's also a certified GAPS practitioner and mind practitioner and holds a certificate in sports nutrition and sports dietitians Australia. So you are getting the most incredible advice and deeply passionate conversation today. We talk all things baby's first foods, the lowdown on rice cereal, building bubs, gut biome, and really just keeping things simple and getting back to our root. You are absolutely going to love this episode with Marika. So get ready. Hi, Marika. Thank you for joining me today. If you could introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your career path and what you're currently working as at the moment. Yes, thank you so much for having me, Caitlin. Um, I'm very excited to be here today. I'm Marika Rodenstein. I'm a holistic dietitian and nutritionist and also functional medicine practitioner. So I actually studied Um, nutrition and dietetics in the Netherlands, where I'm originally from, although I mostly grew up in Australia. And I've got a little over 15 years of clinical experience now. And I've worked as a dietitian in the Netherlands and also in India, in Hyderabad, where I lived for a year and a half. I worked as a volunteer dietitian um, at a hospital there and also within the community. And also had my own practice in Sydney for a brief period of time before moving to Melbourne. And so I've been here since 2012 and I have my own practice up in the Dandenong Ranges. And I started on this path due to my own health issues. So as a teenager, I was an elite level distance runner and triathlete. And I dutifully followed a very high carb, very low fat diet. Didn't even eat an olive because I thought there was too much fat in it. And was doing quite well for a period of time. But eventually my body started to break down. I got stress fractures in my femur. I lost my period. I had quite a lot of chronic gut issues because I was just constantly carb loading, just eating so much fiber and very little fat. I ended up getting anorexia and bulimia and also chronic fatigue syndrome. So it was quite a journey and I went down the conventional path for a while 
I went on the pill to try to get my periods back. I followed a, a dietitian approved eating plan, which was still actually very high carb, very low fat. And I went on antidepressants to, to deal with the anxiety and depression I was experiencing, but only got worse. So that's when I was actually introduced by my father to the work of Weston A. Price, and who was a dentist, a holistic dentist in the 30s from the US. And he studied traditional cultures and traditional diets. And that I read his book from cover to cover and it just really resonated me. And that, that sort of started me on my path and interest in ancestral food. And I started to apply those principles to my own diet and really improved my health, not only physical, but mental quite substantially. And then I really started to get interested in the gut because I still had residual gut issues. When I had bulimia, I actually used and abused laxatives quite significantly and did quite a lot of damage to my gut. So I needed to really focus on that. And that sort of started again, my, my interest in gut health, which is one of my main areas um, that I'm really passionate about. So I did when Natasha Campbell McBride, the author of the GAPS diet, when she came out to Australia for the first year to do the GAPS training back in 2012, I did that. I'm also a mind a practitioner. And two years ago, I finished my training in functional medicine through the Cressa Institute in the US. And I was also a long-standing expert for Sarah Wilson's I Quit Sugar program. And I contributed to a number of her books. And yeah, now I just love seeing people face-to-face or mostly via Zoom this past year here in Melbourne, and also contributing to podcasts. I love uh, speaking, so I do a lot of workshops. And yeah, I'm really excited to be here and talk about another passion of mine, which is creating healthy babies. Oh my gosh. Such a, I love that your story ended up being a fire to help others and actually create your career path, which is the same for myself creating this podcast. Yeah. It all comes from our experiences and we want to help others to not go through what we went through. That's right. Um, so yeah. thank you for that. So yes, one of my obviously very passionate topics is gut health. I went on my own crazy gut journey two years ago and then unexpectedly fell pregnant, but I knew it was actually because my body was finally in a place of healing after having parasites and fungi and all of that stuff. So I have had my own experience with gut health and I guess now I've had a baby. I'm thinking about the next generation. I'm thinking about other babies out there and their gut health. So I would love to ask you some questions and maybe debunk some myths out there around baby's first foods and rice cereal and some of these big topics which I think leave mums feeling really uncertain and awkward and just really lost to be honest yeah love you to share a little bit around this new pressure or maybe it's not even that new actually but there's this huge pressure around mums feeling like their babies on the bigger or higher percentile and that they need to start introducing foods quite early, four months old. What do you think about that? Because the little research that I understand, the gut is still quite open and immature. Yes, that's right. So where possible, I generally recommend exclusively breastfeeding for the first six months and introducing solids after that. And this has been the gold standard recommendation around the world. And is also typically what's been um, practiced by traditional societies, traditional cultures. Some babies, you know, may be ready to start solids before six months of age, but others not. And it really needs to be guided by your child, by your baby, because there is as you say, this pressure to start solids earlier. And there is even advice that if you start solids earlier, it may reduce the risk of allergies. I personally haven't seen research that 
um, is sufficient enough to, to convince me of that. So the timing of introducing solids really depends on many factors, including the maturity of your baby, whether they can hold their head up independently and straight, which allows them actually to swallow food safely. Also the tongue um, reflex, the tongue thrust reflex, that's a really important gauge. When Whether they show interest in food. So some babies might have a lot of, they might be quite mature and, and have a lot of those signs that they are actually ready for solids. And you may be able to start a little bit before six months. What I absolutely don't recommend is starting solids before four months of age. Even that that is sometimes encouraged and it's definitely not a good idea and research has actually confirmed that introducing solids before four months really increases the risk of developing allergies. So before four months of age, a baby's digestive system is still really immature. Their pancreatic function, for example, small bowel absorption, fermentation ability, it's all quite underdeveloped. And this develops or improves in the couple of months after that. So by six months, the pancreas is able to secrete enough enzymes, generally speaking, to actually digest the starches and proteins found in solid foods. So at six months, a baby's digestive system is capable of digesting most of the foods that not are typically recommended, and we'll definitely talk about that, but most foods that are whole food based that are appropriate for infants. So any time between the four and six months of age, the digestive system might not yet be mature enough. I generally tell parents, be guided by your baby, but if you're not quite sure, always just wait till six months because we know at six months they are more capable. Anything before that, it's still developing. So you could still run into some issues that the baby is just not able to tolerate what you're, what you're giving them. And that can lead to more gut-related issues, potentially increased allergies, eczema, and those kind of things. So definitely not introducing foods before four months, but I also recommend not waiting much after six months because if you wait too long to introduce solids that can actually increase susceptibility to um, developing anemia for the baby's developing anemia because a baby has iron stores which last about six months and this is where a delayed cord clamping is really beneficial because the more you delay that cord clamping there's a further boost of iron stores in the baby's liver but that those iron stores become depleted at six months a baby does actually require iron rich foods in the diet from six months to maintain iron levels so if you're delaying it to say eight months there is a greater risk for that baby to develop anemia so within that four to six month window is the ideal time but i generally recommend really waiting until that six month period yeah, wow. I remember Hunter, my son, was trying to grab at our plates and our cups and I started thinking, baby, should I try a bit of food? And I did start to try a bit of fruit purees and vegetable purees and then I noticed he was like regurgitating a lot more and it didn't seem like he was actually stomach it. So I took a little bit of a break. We actually went on holidays and that kind of worked in perfectly because it was so much harder to access good food and I waited just that little bit longer and then I noticed those symptoms didn't take place anymore and he was actually chewing and swallowing and processing the food a lot better and that's when I started to think about this actually good to be doing it earlier even if they can sit up some babies are strong 
Yes. Yeah. And another really key one. So if babies are drooling a lot, it means that they're not able to swallow their saliva effectively. Mm-hmm. So you don't want to start a baby on solid that's still drooling a lot because if they can't swallow their saliva effectively, they're also not going to be able to swallow feed effectively. So that's another kind of sign that you can look out for because sometimes babies still drool quite significantly up until six months. Yeah. So really what I always tell parents that what is more important than exactly when you start solids is actually the types of solids that you start a baby on. That's really key because even at six months, babies aren't actually they're they're still developing um, digestive systems aren't actually able to handle or digest effectively the foods that are typically recommended when we're weaning babies at six months that's not possible so then you imagine you're between four and six months there's quite a bit of development so definitely at four months the foods that we generally recommend babies start on are going to place a huge strain on the digestive system. So more looking, more than looking at what age between four and six months, it's really what kind of foods should I start them on when they are ready. And this is the exciting part. Please, I would love you to share, obviously, the key foods that you believe are so foundational for a baby And also, please, in the same conversation, debunk this myth around introducing rice cereal, what is fortified iron, as they say. Yeah, that's right. As I mentioned, babies are born with um, significant iron stores in their liver, particularly if you delay the cord clamping, but these iron stores become depleted at around six months. Now, rice cereal is completely nutritionally devoid of any kind of nutrients, but it's recommended as a first food because it's an easy food for manufacturers to fortify with vitamins and minerals. Obviously, these vitamins and minerals are synthetic. The key one is iron. They also often put some ascorbic acid, some folic acid, but they are synthetic and not as bioavailable as the nutrients from whole foods. So in the case of synthetic iron, for example, which is the key reason why they recommend the rice cereal, because you need iron, as I mentioned, from six months, babies require iron. So that's why they recommend the rice cereal, because you can easily fortify it with iron. But iron can cause a number of gastrointestinal symptoms as many people experience when they take iron supplements so it can cause constipation it can cause indigestion and gas and really disrupt the still developing digestive system of infants and cause quite a lot of issues so that's one reason why they recommend the rice cereal the other which I still don't quite understand, is that it is very bland food. Um, And that's promoted as being a good thing, introduce bland foods to your babies. But it's actually really important to introduce different flavors to your baby early on because this will really help expand their palate and encourage them to develop a really healthy appetite for a wide variety of foods rather than just bland sweet carbohydrate rich foods so children weaned on carbohydrate rich grains they tend to develop more of a sweet palate and crave more sweet foods and carbohydrates and this can lead to not only fussy eating habits which of course we see a lot in this day and age but also poor dietary choices later in life so that's another problem with the rice cereal another which perhaps many people aren't aware of is the issue with the arsenic. Arsenic accumulates in the soil and water and rice absorbs arsenic from the soil and water more than any other crop. 
So certain crops will absorb more of certain substances from the soil and rice just it is just a magnet for arsenic. And even organically grown rice is susceptible to high levels of arsenic contamination because a lot of I know a lot of parents will choose organic rice cereal or organic rice cruskets thinking then it won't have any arsenic but it has also been found in organic rice products because pesticide runoff it's just modern environment pesticides are ubiquitous it's very difficult to particularly when it comes to rice to farm completely organically devoid of any agriculture and the other thing is that both brown rice and white rice have been found to contain arsenic brown rice a little bit more because it tends to concentrate in the husk but white rice will still have it as well and I did see a research study a while ago from the Journal of the American Medical Association, the pediatric um, journal. They actually found that concentrations of arsenic in the urine of um, babies fed rice was twice as high as um, the arsenic content in the urine of babies who were not fed rice. So that's another issue I have with rice because generally it's recommended we start babies on rice cereals and then of course they have rice cakes and rice cruskets and it uh, a very large majority of their diet is actually rice so that's another problem that I have with that that's why I don't recommend rice cereal what I recommend instead are the foods that traditionally our traditional cultures and even many our parents generation and their parents generation were weaned on which is whole foods and one of the best foods to start babies on is liver Liver is one of the most nutrient-dense foods on the planet um, and it's such a great first food for babies because it's very rich in iron, of course, a natural bioavailable form of iron. And it also has zinc and B vitamins and magnesium and vitamin A and choline and they're all really important for growth and development. So liver is also a very low allergenic food. So it's a really great first choice. Another food that's a great first choice are egg yolks. So egg yolks are rich in choline and cholesterol and other vital brain nourishing nutrients. And it is the egg yolk, it's very easy to digest. It doesn't have the proteins like the white. So it's quite a non-allergenic food. And it, the choline, particularly in the egg yolks, is really vital for optimum brain and central nervous system function. And it's also necessary for the production of a lot of other substances. So it's a really important nutrient. Um, many pregnant women, I think, I believe a study in the US showed that one in two pregnant women is quite deficient in choline. And it's really important for the development of the brain in utero. So really having those choline-rich foods during pregnancy, but also when you're introducing the solids is really key and of course the egg yolks also contain cholesterol and as your cholesterol is often considered a really bad substance and we should avoid it but again it's really important for brain function and nervous system development it's also needed for the creation of many hormones and because the brain is so dependent on cholesterol it's especially important for infants to have because their brain is developing at such a rapid rate and this is why breast milk is really rich in cholesterol it's incredibly rich in cholesterol depending on the woman's diet so oftentimes you hear that your diet doesn't really affect the the macronutrients or micronutrients of your breast milk but we do know there's quite a difference between the fat and cholesterol content of women's breast milk depending on their nutritional status so you can definitely increase the nutrient density and particularly the fats and the cholesterol which is so important for the developing baby whilst breastfeeding by focusing on a nutrient dense diet
So egg yolks are another one. And then other good foods to start are avocado, such a simple food. Bananas, not overdoing the bananas because, again, they are a sweet carbohydrate, but small amounts of bananas are always great. And how amazing these two foods I've got an 11-year-old and a four-year-old, two boys, and I've never given them any pouches or bottles, you know, of food because when I go out and about, I just pop an avocado in my bag, just pop a banana. You don't need any kind of containers. They've already got their own wrapping and they're incredibly, the avocado provides all those wonderful fats. It's quite a satiating food. Add a little bit of banana to that and you're ready to go. Uh, so simple. And they're great first foods, very easy to digest, really great prebiotics. So they're really going to help um, fuel those good bacteria in the gut, which um, we'll probably chat about later. And then also things like small amounts of raw papaya. It's incredibly rich in enzymes. So that's also a really great fruit. And then well-cooked carrots, beetroots, sweet potato, all those lovely, quite nutrient-rich carbohydrates. So that's generally what I recommend to start with. And then depending on the individual and allergy risk, for example, I'll recommend other foods. But generally, there are nine foods that are considered um, to be allergenic, and they are dairy and eggs, peanuts, tree nuts, shellfish, fish, soy, and sesame. So when it comes to introducing those foods, I generally do recommend introducing them one at a time and always introducing them um, and having them for four days in a row. That way you can get an indication as to whether it is tolerated. So you introduce them one at a time, continue to feed that same allergenic food for at least four days without introducing any other allergenic foods. And that way it's really clear and obvious if there are any adverse reactions to that. As I mentioned, the eggs, egg yolks are quite non-allergenic, but some children will react to those. Egg whites are a little bit more problematic, but if a baby reacts to it initially doesn't necessarily mean they will react to it later. So if they have a reaction, stop just for maybe a month or two or three and then try again. Of course, if it's an anaphylactic reaction, it's a different story. But if it's something, things to look out for are like having a hives like rash or vomiting or diarrhea or green frothy poos, any kind of other skin rash, um, fussiness, swelling, those kind of things. If your baby experiences any of those symptoms when you've introduced a new foods, just stop for a while and then try later on. So good. And as you're saying all this stuff, I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, I actually did a lot of those things. So when I was pregnant, I, again, another myth around the whole raw egg thing, I had raw egg yolks twice a day yeah. with um, freshly squeezed orange juice and a liquid iron supplement to boost my iron naturally. And I just yeah. made sure I washed my egg with soap really well, my shell, yeah. and I handled it all self and I did that through my whole third trimester basically because yeah, I refused yeah. to get the iron infusion shots yeah. um, and I got my iron up with liver and I'm thinking oh my gosh imagine all that nourishing food going into Hunter and I was doing it just to avoid the conventional way I was yes. thinking about those things you were saying and his favorite food is egg yolk literally his favorite food <laughs> Yeah, it's so often the case when you introduce things early on. Like my boys, they still love liver. It was their first food. They love eggs. They love sauerkraut because, again, that's something that I do often recommend early on as well, just starting with a little drop of sauerkraut juice 
because again, you want to expose their taste buds to a variety of foods, not just sweet foods, but bitter foods and sour foods. And that really expands their palate. And they have loved those foods from day dot because that's what they were introduced early. So they got exposed to all of those different flavors and, and they've continued to enjoy that. And I see that with a lot of my clients, when they introduce these foods to their children, they don't experience the same fussy eating habits as children who are weaned on all of those carb-rich, sweet grains a beautiful mama this is a quick ad break so go grab a treat or a cup of tea or whatever you need before we get right back into it i hope you're loving this week's episode with marika rodestein isn't she a wealth of knowledge and just such a grounding presence if you've been loving what we're talking about today and feeling passionate about your baby's first foods journey and going down the low tox life i would love it if you can jump over to belly and beyond underscore and download one of my recent ebooks called how to detox your home in seven days it's an incredible ebook packed with seven simple steps to detox around the house in simple ways you wouldn't have even maybe thought of taking your shoes off at the front door what containers and plastics you're using around the house are you using teflon what products you're using and it's a really quick great guide for you as a mom with your bub to make sure that you're creating a wonderful home and being the guard at the front door that's not allowing certain things to enter and protecting our little ones. So jump over there and download that free ebook. I know that's going to support you in so many ways. Now let's get back to Marika. I would love to hear as well, how I feel like there's this huge focus on allergy foods and I think it's so necessary because we just don't know but it's almost like that experience can become quite fearful rather than maybe like an exciting journey and I think for me personally experiencing formula and breast milk and going on this journey I was really excited for the food part because I knew that was something that like I could really choosing and have good choices and do the whole foods and it re-empowered me as a mom to build my baby's gut and I just feel like what do you have to say about the fact that we're not really talking about first foods from a gut building perspective it's more just give them some food let them try it they'll be right just worry about the allergy food and it's kind of this very blase experience yeah yeah Yeah, because food choices are so so important when it comes to establishing a healthy and diverse microbiome diversity is absolutely key so to encourage the growth of a diverse range of microbes in your little one's gut they need to eat a diverse range of foods, um, particularly foods that are rich in prebiotics. And unfortunately, there isn't enough emphasis on this. We, a baby's first exposure to microbes happens when it passes through the vaginal canal. There is some evidence to, su- to suggest that there is some transfer of microbes in utero, but it's still not conclusive evidence. But the main inoculation happens when they're passing through the vaginal canal. The mother's vagina is incredibly rich in Um, bacteria but prior in the weeks prior to labor there's an increase in bacteria particularly lactobacillus species in the vagina and so when the baby passes through that vaginal canal it gets coated in all of that bacteria and that gets into the mouth and then nestles down into the gut and then when the baby gets the first colostrum which is rich in natural sugars that feeds those microbes and then 
and the breast milk is bifidogenic. So it then stimulates the growth of all the bifidobacteria. So depending on the, the way your baby enters into the world, whether it's vaginally or via cesarean, or whether a baby is breastfed or bottle fed, that will actually alter the development of the microbiome. And then anything that happens in those first two years of life, we call it the first 1000 days. So from conception to two years, that's a thousand days. That window is really critical to the establishment of a healthy microbiome. And so anything that happens from birth, particularly up until two years of age, will influence the balance of microbes. So antibiotics, they certain antibiotics have been actually shown to create quite a significant shift, which can be long lasting. So it can actually take two years to re-establish after certain antibiotics. Obviously, sometimes they're absolutely necessary. They are probably one of the most significant and life-saving um, discoveries in modern medicine, but there is quite a serious dark side to the antibiotics, which is this significant disruption of the microbiome. But the really big shift happens when a baby starts solids. So when a baby starts solids, the microbiome starts to resemble more of an adult's microbiome. And so the types of solids a baby starts on really influences the diversity and development of the microbiome. So if they're having mostly carb-rich foods, um, and, and sweet foods that will potentially favor the growth and development of more opportunistic species. Whereas if they're having more fiber rich foods that will favor the growth and development of a diverse range of what we consider to be more beneficial bacteria. So unfortunately there is very little emphasis, as you said, placed on what foods will actually help create a really healthy microbiome and what can you do if you are exposed if your baby's exposed to antibiotics, um, for example, or other things that can disrupt the microbiome. What can you do to help improve that? One other thing that's really important is that herbicides and pesticides have quite a significant impact on the microbiome. And particularly in growing children, they are much more susceptible to the effects of herbicides and pesticides. So that's a really important consideration when you're introducing solids. It's not You don't necessarily have to buy everything organic, but I always encourage um, parents to look at the Dirty Dozen list, which you can find on the Environmental Working Group, ewg.org. It's a list based on the US, but they use very similar chemical inputs here in Australia. So any of the foods that feature in that list, avoid giving them to your baby if they're not organic. So really prioritize those ones, because again, if they're having a lot of herbicide and pesticide rich fruits and vegetables, that's going to alter the microbiome. So that's a really important one. And the interesting thing is that they've actually, aside from those nine allergenic foods that I mentioned, they're finding that babies are actually starting to react to other foods like red capsicum and celery, for example. And interestingly, red capsicum and celery feature every single year on the dirty dozen list. They are two of the most highly vegetables. So I wonder whether it's actually the chemical inputs, the chemicals, the pesticides that babies are reacting to rather than the actual celery or capsicum. Yeah, so that's a really important consideration as well. Yeah, there, there, the really empowering thing is that there is so much that you can do no matter what stage you're at, no matter what your child has gone through, whether they were born by cesarean, weren't breastfed and had lots of antibiotics, the really wonderful and empowering thing is that you can transform your gut health and it, it, it's really not a very difficult process. You don't need to spend a fortune on different supplements. You can just do it through diet alone. And I think that's such a wonderful thing. And, and I do wish that there was more information out there that parents could easily access 
that would actually give them this information because um, it's not just about taking a probiotic supplement, for example. You really need to be aware of your diet. And another um, important consideration when introducing foods is to not introduce it if your child is sick or taking antibiotics or pain medications because that will potentially increase the risk of intolerances or allergies or reactions to food. So that's an important one to think about as well. I always recommend to not introducing any of the allergens around the time of vaccination. You know, if they're sick, if they're on antibiotics, if they're on Nurofen or anything, just always choose a time when your baby is happy. Always introduce those allergenic foods in the morning so you actually have the whole day to monitor what's happening, but most babies won't react to these foods. And you can, like you said, you can see it as an adventure. So, you know, I always recommend every Monday, for example, introducing one of the allergenic foods. You have introduced it on Monday, sometime early in the morning, and then you give it to them on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday as well. So it's four days in total. And then you have a little bit of break. And then the next Monday, you can introduce another food. So you make it, it's like an exciting little experiment. It doesn't have to be so daunting because again, most babies will not react to these foods. But I can understand that it, it is something that a lot of parents worry about. And I know that sometimes there are parents that actually will be in the car park of a hospital before they try giving their child peanut butter, for example. So I know it's a really big fear. If you work on establishing a healthy microbiome and you introduce these foods at a sensible time, so definitely not before four months, ideally more like six months, and really provide lots of nourishing foods for your baby to strengthen their immune system, then definitely the risks will be reduced that they have adverse reactions. I love that. And I think it's so important. I think if you are a mom that didn't get to have natural birth and you're feeling disappointment around that or concern around the health of your baby, or you weren't able to breastfeed or a big one is a lot of women get mastitis and they do have to take antibiotics. And I'm actually on a mission to find a homeopathic remedy that will actually mean women don't have to do that. Mm-hmm. And I so wish that I knew about before I took antibiotics for my mastitis and it's as it's quite critical you have to catch it quite quick yes but it's so empowering to know that even if all of those things took place we still can introduce these first foods these gut building first foods and still ensure that our baby grows up in that zero to two years old with a strong healthy gut which will build a strong healthy immune system and it for me if I was in all of those situations, me, it would feel like I've got a second chance and I can still contribute to the overall health of my baby, regardless of those things. Absolutely. What could you leave as empowering and imparting words? Because I know there's going to be mums that are listening that have introduced maybe high carb diet or the rice cereal or any of these things we've talked about and potentially could be feeling guilty or bad or disappointed what would you say as a dietitian, and if they, they did have any concerns around their baby's health, their gut health or their toddler's gut health, what are the steps that they could take either seeing you or with their food? Just share a little bit about that. Yeah, the message I really want to get across is it's never too late to make a change no matter where you're at. Even I've even had clients in their 80s who managed to make really significant change to their gut health. So it's never too late. And certainly when you're when you have a young child, their gut is a lot more pliable than someone who's had, you know, a whole lifetime of onslaught of everything that we're exposed to. So it's never too late to make a change. And 
don't feel like you need to change everything all at once. If your child is really used to having a lot of carbohydrate rich foods, it's not going to be easy for you to change their diet from one day to the next. Your child would be thinking, what are you doing? I don't like this. I'm not agreeing to this. So I always tell my clients, just pick one thing to do every week. If you make one change every single week, one dietary change, a lifestyle change that will serve your child's health and gut health better, that's 365 changes. Sorry, 52 changes if you're making one a week. That's 52 changes in a year, which is a life change when it comes yep. to your child's wow. health. So don't feel you have to make all of these changes. Suddenly introduce sauerkraut and cut out all the carbohydrate, the sugary carbohydrates. Just make one change a week. You might decide to, instead of giving your child, for example, rice cakes, you might decide, okay, I'm going to try and give them some vegetable sticks instead. Or I might try giving them some vegetable sticks with a little bit of homemade guacamole, just mashing up the avocado as a different snack. And then the next week you might decide, okay, I might try giving my child as a fun game, one drop of sauerkraut juice on their tongue and we'll make it a really fun game. Let's see how squeamish this could make you. And then the next week you might decide, okay, I'm going to try to introduce another vegetable this week. So vegetables in particular are wonderful prebiotics and the more diverse the range of vegetables we have Um, in our diet, the more diverse range of bacteria we promote. So it's really important to have a diverse range of vegetables. I know a lot of parents say, oh, my child has cucumber and broccoli every day. But if that's the only vegetables they're having every day, they're not going to have a very diverse gut bacteria. So introducing a new vegetable every day and, and, and engage your children, allow them when you're going to the farmer's market or to the supermarket to choose what they want to try. And then another day you might, instead of, if you're making something with mincemeat, for example, you might try to add a bit of it to that mincemeat. So if you're making mince patties or a bolognese, I always recommend getting some frozen chicken livers, grating those raw frozen chicken livers into the raw mincemeat, mixing that around, and then you're actually fortifying this meat with the liver. So you might just do 10% liver, which your child will not taste the difference generally, but you're adding all these extra nutrients in. So you don't actually suddenly have to go and, you know, feed your child fried livers or liver pate. You can, you can encourage them in a very gentle way to, to have it. So all of those things, just little steps. The most important thing is when it comes to creating a healthy microbiome, I always refer to it as gut gardening. If you want to create a beautiful garden, you've got to get rid of those weeds. You've got to plant new seeds and then you have to water and fertilize those seeds. So when it comes to establishing a healthy microbiome for your children, you want to um, cut out the weeds, which are all the foods that fuel the growth of opportunistic species. So if your child is having a lot of sugar, a lot of honey, a lot of fruit juices, dried fruit, crackers, cakes, that's all these sweet carbohydrates which favor the growth of opportunistic species. So if your child's having those foods a lot, it's basically providing like an all-you-can-eat buffet for those opportunistic bacteria to thrive. So you want to slowly reduce those foods. You don't need to cut them out straight away, but you want to phase them out. And it's easy to phase them out when you're adding other things in. So you're crowding out those more uh, carbohydrate and sugar-rich foods for more prebiotic foods, which are your vegetables primarily, but also things like coconut, 
and uh, kiwi fruit and nuts and seeds, mm. um, beans and pulses, garlic, onion, uh, her, her spices like turmeric and ginger. They all have wonderful prebiotic properties. So you add more of those in whilst phasing the others out. And then you want to seed the gut with more beneficial bacteria. And that's where fermented foods come in you don't need to shovel half a pot on their plate just a little teaspoon of some sauerkraut or um, some fermented carrot or a, a just a tiny little teaspoon of beet crust which is a super easy fermented food to make or some homemade kefir if you're introducing dairy that's a really wonderful fermented food and then another way to get those good bacteria is actually to allow children um, and if you have a garden, this is the ideal way to do it, to actually pick a cherry tomato from the vine and eat it or get a leaf of, of lettuce from your garden and eat it because all of those fruits and vegetables, assuming they haven't been sprayed, have their own little microbiome surrounding them. So a cherry tomato on the vine has all these wonderful bacteria growing on the outside. So if you allow children to actually eat that cherry tomato, that's nature's probiotic they're getting a whole range of different beneficial bacteria so if you have a garden that's a great way to do it even if you just have a balcony you can plant some pots of herbs and just allow your children to pick a mint leaf or a basil leaf because that will have bacteria on it i always encourage people not to scrub their vegetables too much obviously if they're conventional i would recommend that but if they're from a farmer's market they're spray free or organic or from your own garden allow children to eat them because they'll get exposed to those soil-based organisms and another way again to expose them to beneficial bacteria is allow them to get out into nature and play in dirt and walk barefoot in the bush for a while and just really connect with nature because every surface in nature is teeming covered in beneficial bacteria and the more we expose our children to this the more enriched their microbiomes become. So let them walk without their shoes when you go for a bushwalk or at the beach. Let them touch the soil in your garden or if you go to a um, community garden or a farm, visiting farms is wonderful. When you're pregnant, there's actually research that shows if you visit a farm when you're pregnant and actually are hands-on with the animals, that that actually enriches your microbiome. And for children, it's the same thing. Having pets, like having a dog, has also been shown to enhance the microbiome of children. So there's so many things that are beyond just the food that you can also implement. So if your child is particularly fussy, you could start with those other things first, getting out into nature more. So there's so much opportunity. And I think that's the really empowering thing. There's so much opportunity to make a change, but it doesn't all need to be done right away. You've got time to implement these strategies. So feel confident and comfortable that you do have the time and the space to make these changes. That really excited me because every day, not every day, most days, ever since I visited, we both know her, Hannah Plummer on her farm, she's encouraged me so much just to get little worms and let Hunter play with little worms on his hand and we've got a compost So I always go out there and take my compost out and there's always little worms and I just let the little worms crawl all over his hands and just play in the grass. And the other day it was like raining a little bit and it was hot and he he just, he was naked. He was naked playing with worms in the grass. And I was like, 
That's this is so awesome. Yeah. This is <laughs> yes. Go on a worm hunt, a snail hunt. Yeah, exactly. That's so good. If you go to a local dog park, park, there are many dog walkers that are happy to let your children have a bit of a pat. I always do encourage people to ask whether it's okay because not all dogs are as friendly. But if you don't have a pet yourself, there's always lots of people around that have pets who who the owners are more than happy for um, little hands to pat for a while. It's so fun. I love it. It's just getting in nature, eating whole foods. It's actually not meant to be complicated. It's just buy less packaged food, do a little bit more home cooking, spend time in nature. Like it's, it really is back getting back to, as you would say, our ancient roots, back Mm -hmm. to old ancient wisdom um, and keeping things really simple and yeah. just you know, raising our kids not over complicating things for us and for them yeah um oh my god thank you so much this has been amazing there was so many gold nuggets in there and there's so many like conversations popping around in my head i would love to have you back to talk a little bit more even about gut health during that pregnancy stage because I've had so many people reaching out about their gut health as a pregnant mum passing down. There's lots of conversation around that. So if you would love to come back and talk about that, that would be super fun. I would. Um, I absolutely love joining you today. Thank you so much. And, yeah, I'd be more than happy to come back anytime. And for anyone that is just even a mum might be listening that's, oh, my gosh, I need to work on my own gut. Obviously, where can people come and find you if they want to take that journey further? Yeah, so I consult in Sassafras and the Dandenong Ranges in Melbourne, but also a lot via Zoom or phone. So I do have clients all over Australia or overseas as well. And you can find me at Marika, which is M-A-R-I-E-K at thenutritionpractice.com.au. That's my email or just thenutritionpractice.com.au is my website. It's a very basic website. I mentioned earlier, I'm very technologically unsavvy. So you won't find me on Facebook or Instagram. Uh, I'm very no frills. Yeah, via my website website or email you can get in touch and yeah more than happy to help um, in any way I can with your journey towards better health or your children's journey towards better health oh thank you so much I 100% know that this has empowered many women listening and giving them a lot more confidence around raising their children so thank you very much and I hope that we can speak to you again soon definitely Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Bell and Beyond. Mama, I know you're so busy and your time is precious. So I hope today's episode has left you feeling more empowered around your choices and that your voice matters. If you have loved this week's episode, make sure you subscribe and get all the weekly updates. It would also be so awesome if you could leave a five-star review for this independently run podcast produced by this mama herself. And if you've had all the feels today and a mum's popped into your mind, jump over, send her a DM or share it on your stories. That would be the absolute best. If you have any questions at all, connect with me over on my Instagram at bellyandbeyond underscore and let's write or rewrite your story of motherhood together.